I saw different markets change, who benefited, who didn't benefit. And I never really saw everyone benefit. Well, how do I do something with all this knowledge? How do I make it like benefit people? Is it about making money or is it about making a difference? Welcome to Non-Zero. I'm your host, Aaron Kanata, and I'm here today with Craig Cecilio. He's the founder and CEO of Diversity Fund. Their tagline is, we serve everyday investors. And I'm really excited to get into this with Craig. One of the themes of Non-Zero, as you guys are going to learn as we go on this journey together, is we really want to promote companies have, that share the same values as we do. Our tagline here is growth is not a zero-sum game. And everything Craig is doing at Diversity Fund is to really help the everyday Joe. It's to really help individuals with their investment, with their lives, and really build the type of future that they want um, that's really going to help them get to where they want to be going in life. So, Craig, it's a pleasure to have you on the mic. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. So before we jump into diversity, give us just a little bit of background. What was the genesis of the company? How did we get where we are today? It's, it's kind of a lifelong story. And I've been getting asked a lot that. And I really have to tap back into my childhood and my upbringing. I was born in a, in a middle-class family, not so much Leave it to Beaver style, but kind of Connecticut. Mother was a school teacher. Father just cause, kind of was in a retail business. Uh, growing up, we lived in a nice area, but we really weren't really well off. We were just kind of middle middle class. And I've always kind of around the dinner table. We always had dinner together as a family every night. It was always hearing my dad always talking about, well, why didn't we have more money? Why does this person get to go to the country club and I can't go? What was me? The system's against me, yada, yada, yada. And kind of ingrained me at an early age of just like, okay, what, what's going on here? And I think that kind of sowed the seed right there. I go back to someone's like being kind of like seven years old. And I always would question him and kind of didn't have a great relationship with him growing up. I'm like, well, why don't you do something about it? And so that was always kind of kind of the beginning of everything. And uh, my mother being the, the bread earner and being a school teacher, going back again to school again in Connecticut, if you have a certain level of education above your master's level, you go up the income bracket and what they pay you. Uh, so she went back to school and got her seventh, and I think her eighth year. So she could go up that bracket. And, and watching her work hard and, and kind of to support the family, uh, that is kind of a little bit of how I, I kind of got that work ethic as well. And then I kind of moved away from home, went to school out in Colorado, got to see the world and moved out to California, ended up in, in La Jolla, which is a nice area. And I factored, hey, if I want to become successful and do something, I should go in an area where a lot of successful people are. And uh, after college, was La Jolla was an area in California that if you're not familiar with it, it's a pretty affluent area and surround myself with those who've done it before and just immersed myself into kind of studying stuff that they did. And that's when I came across uh, some people taught me how to raise capital, develop real estate, develop ca- uh, raise ca- structure capital, capital structures uh, for uh, uh, any type of investments. And I learned that at an early age. I think that was by the age of like 23, I started learning that stuff. And those things you kind of really don't learn later in life until you're like mm. in your 40s. So, and I think that was because I was just kind of really just young and very open to learning all the time and had was around the right situation as in the right environment and the right demographics to learn from them. And what I would do at that point in time is whatever I did, I tried to be really good at at the end of the day. Uh, Cause that's a work ethic. I kind of learned from my mom. So I got recognized by people of being passionate, being coachable and also wanting to, uh, and I had a kind of end goal of what I wanted to do. So I kind of sowed the seeds and that was probably the late 90s, all that happened. Mm. 
And uh, with all that, I started my first business in the early 2000s, absorbed a couple market cycles and uh, learned a lot along the process. And when I saw the opportunity through the Jobs Act of 2012, I saw that some things were coming down. I kind of had one of those aha moments where it's like all these things came together. I was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I think that was around like 13 or 14 pieces started coming together. And, and then about 16, I was able to start the company and build Diversity Fund and be on the path to where we are today. Taking a little bit of a step back, you talked about your father. And when, I, when, when you were first talking about it, I expected you to, to say, oh, I, I always had a chip on my shoulder toward those who had more than us. Because, but, but you mentioned you didn't have a, a tremendous relationship with your father. And that Rather than putting a chip on your shoulder, it sounds like that almost motivated you. And it was your mom who really you looked to as the person to emulate. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one story I always say is my dad goes, what do you think? Money grows on trees. And so I buried a dollar bill in the backyard and watered it. <laughs> and wanted to kill me. So, Have you gone back to check? Because, you know, it might just take a long time to seed. Uh, they, they sold them out. <laughs> And they appreciate it at the right time. So, oh, yeah, so now I mean, whoever's living there has a nice money tree in the backyard and they're just plucking $100 bills off. So that, that, that'd that be great. So that doesn't work if you're a kid. <laughs> no, but, it yeah, doesn't. Uh, that, I, that I can't was- say I've tried, but I'm, I'll believe you that it doesn't. But another thing, you know, I spent some time in, in finance too. And a lot of the stories that I hear are similar in the sense that people grew up and, and didn't necessarily have money And they kind of figured that learning about money, learning about finance, learning about how to be responsible and how to invest was a way to kind of escape that is, you know, if if they were lower class or middle class and they felt that there was a way to get above, they looked to finance. But correct me if I'm wrong, you kind of chanced into it in in your early 20s. It sounds like you were. Can you um, expand on that a little bit as far as how you got interested and into learning about finance? Was it specifically because you were brought up a certain way and you wanted, you you saw it as a way to a a richer lifestyle for lack of a better word? Financial freedom. There was intent there as a, as a, as a kid, I I started on East coast. I had a a landscaping business, uh, rake leaves, living in California, don't rake leaves. I was like, what leaves? Shoveled Mm -hmm. snow for driveways. That doesn't happen out here. Uh, Mowed lawns. Always did a lemonade stands, put on like a play, a neighborhood play every year. We had that. It was kind of embarrassing. <laughs> uh, did stuff like that. And then, you know, you hit puberty, you lose the voice. So that, that ended my day of singing and dancing. Thank God. We, uh, we have way too much in common. I had the it, same experience. I was in choir. And funny enough, I was from back east. So I remember when I was young, the, the, the leaves on the ground. And my father hated the weather so much. He moved to Southern California twice. He was an educator. My mom was a stay-at-home mom and I grew up in Irvine, uh, probably with, with less money than most people around me, at least when I was young. And so it was a very nice neighborhood and interesting upbringing. But the, the difference is I think I, I had an uncle who did very well in, in finance and I always looked at that and that was my reason for going into finance personally. And so I, I think though it's, it's always interesting to me what actually motivates us. So coming a little bit beyond that, so you're learning about finance and yeah. I know of a lot of ways in finance where you can build wealth for yourself. And but first, first, let's get into it. Where, did you go specifically into the financial services space? Were you working with individuals on the other end? Were you on the institutional side? I mean, uh, the, the beginning stages was just surround and go to an area to surround myself with people. And then I got introduced to a real estate developer in a solvency attorney. Uh, mm. 
the same time. And so I had two people that were mentoring me and one was saying, okay, get involved in he, this get involved in real estate. And the other one was saying, okay, this is how you structure deals from a legal point of view. And he kind of shared with me his, his, his clients and how they did it and how they did these instruments. So it was kind of like fast forward to advanced learning right away. And they opened kind of this kind of hidden way to, to build wealth that they knew about uh, just through relationships and being in the right place and just being a, a person that they felt that they uh, could talk to, that they liked and being likable. And they just poured out all this stuff. This is what you have to do. And they made, said, do all that stuff and, and, and go in and start at the ground level here. I'm going to help you out. So, And then they said, just get good at it. And so I got good at everything. I could in the beginning, and uh, you know, in within a couple of years, they're the ones kind of backing me on the deals. So mm-hmm. it's really a lot of kind of even though I graduated from college and got that education, a lot of it was just kind of taught to me by them. So I felt like yeah. it was an advanced course. Uh, so and then everything else that I needed, if I need to get this certification or take this course, I would take that on top of that. But really, their kind of their knowledge just got to me really quickly. And so I was very fortunate for that and very thankful for that, for them to give me all that and all their connections, all the people they knew as well. Uh, Why do you think they took a personal interest in you? At that time period, a 97, 98, different time period in, in, in Southern California, I, it was just different in, in whichever way. Some, some people say better, some people say worse for what it was. I, I was kind of came out here and I was non-intrusive, I would say. I was very like, oh, I love this. It's a great outdoors. It's very uh, beach all year round. Love that. I love to like work out physically and, and, and take advantage of the, the environment, use the water and do all that stuff. And they got to witness me and seeing how I love reading and love studying and stuff. And it didn't seem to be a lot of young people where I lived back then in there. There weren't a lot of people and just... I just kind of was someone that got uh, that kind of law of attraction just kind of was there was always a nice person, easy to talk to. I had that little drive. Uh, they always saw me reading stuff and learning stuff and asking questions. And it was kind of just, Hey, here's someone uh, that I uh, um, kind of had a connection with. And then they just kind of became like a mentor to me at an early stage. So I always say, put yourself in a position to, uh, meet people and always whatever you're doing, kind of do your best at it and always have a positive attitude and usually and be nice to people and usually good things happen. The, and back then, uh, living in that area is one of the things I've always learned is being being humble is you walk around that, that town and it's kind of like a surfer town, very wealthy town. And someone could be wearing a, sh- uh, a white t-shirt, a pair of shorts and flip flops and they could be worth like hundreds of millions of dollars. Are we and still talking back in Connecticut or are we talking about La Jolla now? We're talking about La Jolla. We're talking about okay. La Jolla. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so when, and so just treat everyone the same. And, 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 and back then that's how I was kind of, uh, that's kind of part of my upbringing through my mother. And, 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 and so that's what I did. Treat everyone with respect and ended up just building the right, build those relationships kind of manifested mm-hmm. uh, with time just being out there. Do you think you'd be where you're at today without the, the two of them? Your mentors? I don't think if they didn't appear, I think, I think it would appear either or some, someone would appear. I had a lot of drive. I was going to put myself in a position to succeed. I was going to do whatever it took to do it. So, uh, they definitely helped, uh, catalyze that, made that process go a lot faster. And what do you think as, as far as your early success, 
obviously you're a smart enough guy. You're going to pass the exams. That's, that's one part of it is there's a certain level of intelligence and drive to take exams, but your early success, do you attribute it more to being intelligent or, or or do you think the, the people aspect of it, you touched a couple of times on the fact that they just had a way with people. They knew how to speak to people. They knew how to build relationships. If you were to Take, can you take one and teach one? Meaning, would you rather take somebody early on if you were to mentor somebody and say, I- I'd rather have somebody who's really great at bu- building relationships and I can teach the rest? Or is all of that other stuff, you know, the drive, drive, I don't think you can teach. I think that's something that some people just have. But the, the other part, the, the, the knowledge, the know-how, would you take that first and say, hey, I can teach people how to, you know, connect, how to develop those relationships? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of a multi-layered question. If I'm looking for an employee or I'm looking to someone to mentor, there's two different things. That's, that's, that's true. Well, how about if you were looking for an employee to start out, just somebody you wanted to, who, who you could see having a very bright future with your company? Yeah, for me, as, as I'm selecting stuff, to me to be the best CEO possible, I have to hire someone with skills the company needs to succeed, a skill we don't have to fit that role. So I want someone be a very much technician, be great at that. Also being coachable and having the intangibles as well. So I'm trying to look for all for someone I'm trying to mentor. It's going to be really intangibles, really heavy on the intangibles and drive. It's going to be the big thing. Uh, uh, you know, the coachability, uh, what, what, what is your well, coachability is big. Uh, mm. uh, uh, very coachable. Is, it's everything. It's like willing to listen, being humble, uh, willing to sacrifice uh, things as much. Uh, I mean, I, I came from the back in the day that, hey, I'll work for free for a full year if you could teach me everything. I knew how valuable stuff was. Today is a different world. It's a little different because you get everything online. So everything's kind of shared. It's a lot faster, somewhat like stuff. So the, the intangibles are a little different uh, than they were, but you still have to look at those intangibles and look at the drive of the person as, as well. And, you know, something about their background, a story about them, what makes you tech. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so kind of, and still, like I said, two different things, but still commonality is the intangibles I'm looking for uh, in people. And so obviously, you know, coachability is the number one thing I would say across the board. Moving back to um, your story and the timeline here, you were, uh, so, so you had these mentors and you got into real estate investing and this is how you initially made your, uh, early on, this is where you saw success. What was the, the, the transition from, being a mentee into being an enterprising entrepreneurial, how did this seed get planted that you needed to start a company on your own? Oh, I, I the drive never, I, I could never work from somebody and just looking back at the childhood and my dad complaining all the time, uh, looking at how my mom said, well, that's why I have the study job for you to go out and, and start your own business. And he never did. So I think behind the scenes, she was always, well, it didn't work with him when he tried it with my son. And, and so she, having her in my corner to push me all the time. Uh, and that, I think there's a big story there. She was always like, you have to get your grades. I'll let you go out with your friends as late as you want, but you got to get the grades. So I got, mm-hmm. I love going out with my friends. Like, but so I got the grades right. and, and, and it was, it was, you know, fortunate to have probably a little bit of her genes being able to get, you know, stuff, being able to study well and, and, and get A's and, and apply myself and, you know, have that little drive and it, it, to do that really helped out a lot. Yeah. And I, and I, I do I, also think entrepreneurship or, or the, the interest in, in being your own boss is a genetic thing to a certain extent. There are certain character traits that make people more inclined toward that. It might even be a disease because I know a lot of people, it can destroy you. You know, it, when, when that's your, your sole drive, it's not easy to make it in business. I think everybody in business knows that you have to fail 
more, you know, you have to fail often and be willing to fail. And it's one of the things that I've, a theme that consistently runs through conversations that I've had is just the overall amount of failure seems to, to be way, way greater than those successes. But when you do hit success, the, the payoff is, is tremendous. So it's almost like you're, you're chasing this itch that hopefully one day you'll get to scratch. Yeah. I mean, we, I have a motto around here. We call it do learn grow to try to get rid of the fail out of there. Cause someone's like that fail words kind of, you know, it's like a negative word. So it can be anathema. Yeah. Let's do, we're always doing something when you're making a choice here, you're, you're either doing something or not doing something. That's a choice. So you're doing, you're learning from that action and by learning you're growing. And so kind of rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And the more you can do that, the more you can accelerate that, the more you can accelerate growth. And that's where you'll get results from. So we're very big into that today to do that around here. And that's since I always was type that uh, person naturally, we do that today. And now we do that kind of with our company. And we do that a lot with data and how the world's changed. And I, I just love data because of that reason, because it gives you a, a lot of feedback. So you can learn a lot with that. And I thought that was like a natural fit for me because I was always doing and learning. Now I could do and learn. I got all this feedback, all this data to analyze. Right. Okay, this is how I can do that better. Uh, so I, I just am thrilled to be in, in today's day and age in the business world. It's great. And going back to it is, uh, yeah, it wasn't easy. I mean, they, these guys, when they told me everything, they told me to go work in like a boiler room, like a loan officer boiler room for my first job. And they're like, mm. you'll be good at it. And I was like, I walk in there and there's like, it was just a uh, kind of a boiler room at the end of the day. And I was like, Oh, I got this. And Did they like, tell you to go home and watch Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross? Well, I think we've all watched that. Right <laughs> Nowadays it's Wolf of wall street. That's the, the new generations, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. There was a movie actually called boiler room in between, which I think was the same sentiment. It's uh, that, the, yeah. the glorified salesperson, right? Who's, it was just out to, to cheat anybody and to make a buck, which I think is a brilliant transition into what you're doing. Cause I do want to get to, we, we serve everyday investors. Was yeah. it a natural transition from prior? I, maybe we could talk about who your clientele were and what kind of work you were doing in the real estate and the, the investment space, yeah. um, just mm-hmm. leading up to it. Because I do want to know where the impetus for helping the everyday came from. If it was, you working with ultra high net worth or high net worth individuals, what a lot of people would refer to as the 1%. And, and you saw a need for this kind of investment to be available to more. But I'd, I'd rather just shut up and let you actually tell. Yeah, it was so, really uh, early stages able to learn how to structure uh, deals uh, to give yields to high net worth individuals and to institutions. And so to do that through either real estate development or real estate lending as JV or loans or uh, JV partnerships and, and some being the developer yourself. So from early on, I, I saw that, did that, got to meet different players in the game. I saw how funds were set up, uh, mm. uh, different types of funds. Uh, back then was more uh, uh, reg uh, reg D type funds and pretty much high net worth and some uh, exemptions there. And saw how those were packaged and put together and how people structure that from the mechanics behind that from the paperwork. Uh, then I started learning how, again, a little, little data story. After a while, I started learning who funded deals. And I started going around to public records and do that and see the LLCs and see the institutions. And then I'd call them up, a lot of hands-on work, and, and call them up and say, Hey, how do you guys do deals? How do you structure deals? I learned how to pierce the LLCs and see who are the members of the LLCs who were, had the most money in those LLCs. I'd call them up and say, Hey, would you like to be an invest with me in my project or someone else's project? So really kind of hands-on into that world of grabbing data and structuring and understanding what people invested in and how to underwrite stuff and structure stuff. 
I mean, gosh, I've done so many transactions, really a lot of legwork, probably over thousands of conversations with people on that. And, that, and when you have that mm. many conversations, you start, it, there's some common factors come. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's always like, how do you, and I always struggle with the win-win situation. So who, who wins out in this situation? Is the right. person who's got the money wins or is the person that's got the project wins? You know, where, where, where do I win and how you tie this all together? And the more I went, I, I saw how things were done. I saw how banks acted, institutions acted, I know how networks acted. I saw different markets change, who benefited, who didn't benefit. And it, I never really saw everyone benefit. And so yeah. it was always something like one person benefits, one person doesn't benefit at the end of the day. Unless you hit the market at the right time, everybody benefits from the market. Right. So that's everyone's happy, but that's not really happens all the time. And so that's kind of the formulation. I, I saw this happen and saw a lot of greed behind the scenes. I saw a lot of things that I don't think, uh, I've seen laws change along the way, mm-hmm. uh, and which, which was, I think, really good. Some of the regulations that happened. I think in 2009, there's some big regulations that passed. Uh, I know 12, a lot of stuff passed. So that, that I thought were very positive things. And so it, it shows, it, it just kind of got me thinking like, well, how do I do this? I have all this knowledge and how do I do something to make it fair to both sides? Mm. And all at the same time is why are only certain people benefiting? And, and the people who are benefiting, they always had a certain personality about them too. And I didn't really kind of dig it at the end of the day. It was, it was more me, 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 me. It's like, hey, here's the turkey bone. If you heard that analogy, it's, it's, it's like they took all the meat off of it. Whereas yeah. everybody else, it was really cut and dry. Oh, it's just business. Don't take it personally. Oh, it's just right. business. It's transactional. That's uh, I think about this all the time, and that's the nature yeah. of the, this podcast. What, what we're describing is, or what you you just described, it, are zero sum games where one person wins and and somebody else loses. In finance, they call it rent seeking, right? Where you're just extracting value from other people and you're re- rearranging numbers on a balance sheet. Numbers might be coming your way, but what value are you actually providing? to the world, to the, to your customers, to society at large. And so I, I love where this conversation is going. Was there an aha moment for you when, when you decided I, I've had enough enriching the wealthy, I've got to figure out a way to, to make these kinds of investments available to the masses or a series of moments, probably. Earlier on, I would say you're, you're, you're doing these things and the technology wasn't there. So I, I remember since I did all this research, I had institutions, I had hedge funds, I had high net worth individuals, and I had, and I did the research and I had hundreds, I had a couple thousand of a list and I conducted business with up to 500 to a thousand. And I had to get the information to them. So when I had to do a project myself or for somebody else, and I was like, well, how do I deliver the information? Okay. Palm pilot, email, basic website days. So I was kind of experimenting with this stuff in the beginning of how to get it off to them. And so I was always kind of like, okay, if I needed to raise, let's say $5 million, like do I do it from one person or do I do it from five people? Do I do it from a hundred people? So I was already mm-hmm. kind of thinking that way before it happened. Uh, so um, for what I'm doing today and how to, how to do it through uh, the micro investing through the masses. So I was kind of like behind the scenes was, was already kind of working on the technologies and this technology kind of accelerated and got better. It was, it was matching to where my background was, what, what, what I was doing. And, um, and then, and then also seeing the behavioral traits of people and how they acted. And, and, and uh, so it was, it was a kind of a gradual process. It was a gradual process. Mm-hmm. It's seeing how the laws changed, the technologies changed, how the behaviors really didn't change at all with people who are behind the scenes, the institutions, the brokers, uh, the lenders involved. 
And I know you're in, you know a little bit about this industry and you've partaken in it. You understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. And people are kind of visual in their head and how they acted. It's like, well, how do I do something with all this knowledge? How do I make it like to benefit people? Because it was kind of like making money is, is if that's kind of your thing. And I had to look at myself, is, is it about making money or is it about making a difference? And, and it's, it wasn't like, it was like a soulless kind of career in a way. Yeah. It's like, okay, we're trying to do deals with so people are trying to make a lot of money. It didn't really feel right. Do you get a sense when you talk to other people, do you think most people are motivated? Obviously there's a base level of money. They've even done studies about, you know, the trade-off between money and happiness. And there's a minimum amount that you need in order to, that does correlate to more happiness, but above a certain number, it doesn't. And obviously Southern California is very expensive. So I think it's like 90 K plus for, and that's for an, for a single person, it's 90,000 and up. But once you get to a certain level, it drops off. But I think there's this, this, this idea that the ultra wealthy people who are, really, really well, well to do are s- simply single, you know, mindedly focused on the, the, the number of zeros in their bank account, in their net worth. And yeah. you've talked to a lot of these people. Do you get a sense for that, that most people are motivated strictly by the money and what it affords for their own lifestyle? Or do you think there's a lot of people like you out there who want to focus on some sort of greater good or have this moral drive behind what they're building? Yeah, I think it's been transitioning. I think a lot of people are focused on the ESG components when they invest nowadays, looking at what, what are they investing in? Who are they investing in? Does that have a mm-hmm. purpose behind it? I think I see there's a, there's a definitely big shift in this country with that. But back when I was doing it, it was more people, what can I get it for, out of it myself? Mm-hmm. Now it's more, I, I believe, even I thought Silicon Valley has is, 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 been pretty good at how do we give back and how do we make this uh, more win-win from everybody? Uh, so I see that kind of a complete cultural shift with that. Um, and it's just kind of a different mindset. It's like, Hey, can I, can I provide something? Can I serve people? And I would say, Hey, mm-hmm. hey how do I serve the everyday investor? Can I provide a product to them that could help them out? And I just feel fortunate enough that through my background, I was able to connect the dots and, 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 and to do something. So there's more than just, Hey, making money here. There is right. that passion is actually serving people and helping people in so many forms and manner. And uh, just feel kind of blessed and, and, and more blessed because I'm able to do that during COVID right now. Uh, our company has kind of taken off these last few months as well. And just great. It's been a great year. Uh, it's been a tough year for everybody. Uh, every day is a new challenge. Mm-hmm. And just to have something that I'm going to and it's about helping other people, it makes you feel good at the end let's, of the day. You let's feel talk like- about yeah. So I really do want to get into it because I think we've only got a couple of minutes left. Let's really dive into diversity fund. What you were explaining to me earlier, a couple of, of catchwords or buzzwords came to my mind. Crowdfunding was one of them. Yeah. Um, so what is the nature of, of the work? How, how do people actually engage with your company, the average investor? What's that customer journey look like? They realize they want to invest differently, maybe. Um, how do they find diversity fund and what are you guys doing? Yeah, there's all, all these catch words. And so at the end of the day, I'll just tell you what it is. And we don't yeah, have to think of what it does it mean. And that's always kind of confuses people. So for us, we we are able to get uh, qualified to the SEC. So regardless of your net worth, you're able to invest through our platform. And so we our investments are as low as $500. Mm-hmm. And, it doesn't, and it's 10% of your net worth, whatever that is. You have a net worth of 5,000, 10% is $500. Bucks, right. If you own a car with some equity, you can invest $500 cash into us. It's all automated it's through technology. It's online. There's no salespeople. It's a whole process. 
uh, gets together. And you, and you ask yourself, hey, how do I get wealthy with $500? So we ended up creating some financial tools like auto deposit features for people so they could do $500 a month on a recurring basis because if you compound that year over year, you could start mm-hmm. growing wealth long term. We also started introducing a full suite of financial literacy tools to help educate people how does this work? How does our product work? How does our processes work? How does basic finances work? So people have that. Uh, information, uh, basic information, so they make decisions because we're really opening us up to everyone across the whole socioeconomic ladder right. here, and not just everybody. And some people who already know about investing here is an opportunity. So we take the, all that, and since we aggregate such large sums of money from so many people, we're able to buy really large assets that are twenty to twenty-five million dollars in nature that are really reserved for institutions or hedge funds or ultra-high net worth individuals. So we get mm-hmm. to play in that field with those guys who do it. And historically, and this is happening right now, when does the greatest transference of wealth happens? It happens during down periods, distressful periods, pandemics, war, huge recessions, mass amounts of wealth gets transferred. And who buys all that at a discount? It's all the people with capital. family offices, yeah, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. So so now we have a tool for people to say, hey, don't miss out. Here's an opportunity. And in today's environment, most people have to, well, I can't do this, Craig, because I'm going through this. Well, we have these low minimums and we have these reoccurring things that you could participate in as well. So I feel like we actually have a product that didn't mean it to it that we started four years ago to happen today, but it's perfect for today's uh, circumstances. And now you can compete with those other people who behind the scenes are really making a lot of wealth. Mm-hmm. And to participate along. And I think that's going to level the playing field. I think myself with our company, we're at the forefront of this today, but in five to 10 years, you're going to see the whole investment world change because of that. I know for high net worth um, investors, or, or one of the reasons why uh, investments might be limited to high net worth is for liquidity reasons. When you got approved with the SEC, was there something in there that said, okay, if, if, they're, if, if you're putting this to all, people of all socioeconomic status, there has to be some sort of liquidity, meaning, meaning can people take their money out or is there a holding period once they put their money in that they're going to be in for a while? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot. When you, when you start playing with the SEC, you have to jump through a lot of hurdles. It's, it's, it's right. quite expensive for us with the, or we get audited all the time. We get twi- you know, we, we post our financials online for the world to see. So, I mean, you got full transparency there so people could trust that as this is a growth instrument. So it's, it's technically, it's illiquid in nature and we have to educate people that, Hey, you stick just the right amount for that to grow and compound. Mm-hmm. And that is where education comes in. Because if you're trying to get it liquid, you're not going to get wealthy. You're not going to grow that wealth. Right. So that's where the literacy comes in. This is, we're not, that's, it's not a liquid. We're not playing the market here. We're in the long term. Uh, the long, it's, it's more, uh, so it's more of a five to 10, it's a more of a five year thing. A lot of people think five, 10, 20 years down the road, generational wealth. I like to look at it as like your savings account on steroids. So you have a savings account, so you could save money. Here's it. But what does the savings account yield? I don't know. Nothing these days. And so here's something. And you're not supposed to touch your savings. You put right. money in your checking account to pay your bills. You have your reserves and you have your savings account. Just save away for the future. And that's kind of where I see us more in that. And do a lot of education. And that comes to the fact that our minimums are so low. And we have the tools there in place that tells you, okay, this is how much you should do based on mm-hmm. your, your specific situation where compared to everybody else. So, I mean, that's what we're really focused a lot on this year is presenting those tools, that education, so people can participate. And you just do a little less. It's only 500 right. to start with. I imagine the diversity and diversity fund is, is a shortening or a play on diversify. 
But yeah, or, did I miss the mark? Diversification, yeah. Okay, and for for the lay person, uh, can you explain that it's, it's diversification portfolio of assets? It's great to diversify your portfolio, personal portfolio. At the same time, when we go out and we purchase our assets, it's diversified in a fund of assets. Uh, with that being said, sometimes you get some are great home runs and some are a little bit less, and it averages off. You look at that diversification to hedge against uh, your winners, and, and some of them are just your singles, your doubles, your triples, your home runs. So, so this is something off. great to go alongside their stock portfolio. They might not own some real estate on their own. They might have some some money in cash and various other assets, but this is a great complement. And diversification, one of the major benefits is you're mitigating your risk. So yeah. a, a lot of these assets trade differently in different environments. And so while some might be going up, others might be going down. Is, is that fair? Yeah. And a great example, Aaron, is I, I know you know a little bit about real estate and we're hopefully I think uh, we're same age, not really sure, but an older movie. If you want to get involved in real estate, you should probably rent the movie, The Money Pit, Tom Hanks. I've never seen it, but I've, I've heard about it. I've, <laughs> and for our audience, go out and rent The Money Pit. And I think we've just got about a moment left. So where can people go? Um, is it diversityfund.com? Diversityfund.com. I have all my social handles on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. We'll put them in the show notes of the show as yeah. well. Um, I want to leave the last moments to you. I mean, unless you've got more time, we can keep at it. But I think I'd love to just have you back on at a later time so we can expand on the conversation because I love what you guys are doing. But why don't you take the last minute to wrap up, say anything about the company that I didn't really touch on so so everybody's aware. So I appreciate being on the show and everything. And the more people that participate the better the industry will be. More companies such as our company can succeed. So we would like people to check us out, get involved, ask questions, give us feedback. This is new for most people. They haven't done this before. The barrier to entry, there is no barrier to entry. It's $500 to learn. Learning is great. That's the third state. Take those first steps. As you learn, we learn. We take care of our customers. We're customer-centric. We're always trying to provide you more details on how things are. Educate yourself. Learn about this. It's game changed. It's been changing everything in the investment world. We're opening this up to everybody. When you think there's no more hope left in the world and it's all stacked against you, there's now now and then companies come along. There's a lot of them out there today that are coming along to help you out. And what we want is to really create the awareness and participation amongst people. Well, I love the messaging. It sounds like a, a truly non-zero uh, type of program. So Craig, appreciate you coming on. We'll have to do this again and enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, sounds good. Appreciate it, Aaron. Thanks. Cheers.